0: why it's so hard to remember people's names and what you can do about it. Then, we all get defensive and have to deal with others who get defensive. So let's understand what's
1: going on. Most of us think that when we get defensive, we think that we're defending ourselves from other people. But that's not really what's going on when we get defensive. We're not defending ourselves from other people. We are defending ourselves from fears inside of us that we don't want to feel.
0: Plus, do you ever think your cell phone is ringing when it really isn't? And the special relationship between mothers and sons, and why it often hits bumps along the way.
2: Mothers, I have found, are harder on their daughters than they are their sons, because we see our daughters as little mini-us. But for our sons, we're not quite sure, and we tend to parent them far too long. We don't want
0: to let our boys go. All this today on Something You Should Know. Ask a business owner or manager who's looking to hire someone, and they'll often use the word hope. As in, I hope I find someone good. I hope this person works out. You don't want hope. You want to nail this perfectly, because the right people can make all the difference to your business. No, you don't need hope. You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I think makes Indeed special is that it's not just names and resumes. It's a system that guides you through the hiring process to help you get the right candidate for the job. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/something you just go to indeed.com/something right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on something you should know indeed.com/something terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed Something you should know. Fascinating
1: intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers.
0: Hi, welcome. The one thing probably at the top of my list to do when we can get back to life as normal, whenever that is, is to get a haircut. (laughs) I am so glad this is not a video podcast. Because my hair... My hair is just, I can't remember it ever being this long. Same with my boys. I mean, even they, when they like to have their hair long, but but this is getting getting ridiculous. But in in the meantime, I, I just avoid mirrors and wait it out. We start the podcast today talking about the problem of remembering names. If you have trouble with that, well, you're in good company. It's not easy and we now have a better understanding as to why it's so hard to remember names. It's called the Moses Illusion. So, here's the question. How many of each animal did Moses bring on the ark? If you said two, you're wrong. The answer is zero because Moses didn't bring any animals on the ark, Noah did. The question is part of a classic psychology experiment called the Moses Illusion, first developed in a 1981 study to test memory and reading comprehension. Both names refer to male biblical characters, uh, Moses and Noah, and they're both associated with miracles. And these shared features create competition for recalling the correct name at the correct time. This in turn makes it more difficult for people to detect the error, even though most people know the difference, between Noah and Moses. Names are essentially just Syllable soup. They're meaningless labels that usually do not reveal any telling information about the person to whom they refer. That's why they're so easy to forget unless you associate them with something else. And that is something you should know. Here's a comment I'm sure you've heard or said to someone else. Don't be so defensive. Or, why are you getting so defensive? So why do we get defensive? And what is all this defensiveness doing? Well, it appears to be causing a lot of problems because it makes communication hard when you get defensive or the person you're talking with gets defensive. Here with some really interesting insight into this is Jim Tam. For 20 years, Jim was an administrative law judge who was right in the thick of this, helping to resolve disputes between people who were by definition, pretty defensive. He now has a business called Radical Collaboration where he helps people get beyond defensiveness. And he's author of a book called Radical Collaboration. Hey, Jim, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here, Mike.
0: So help me understand defensiveness, what it is, where it comes from, and and why it's such a problem.
1: The problem with defensiveness is we tend to put when we get defensive, we tend to put more energy into self-preservation than problem-solving. And in my 20 years as a judge dealing with employment disputes, I almost never had to deal with pure legal issues. People were typically before me because somebody was feeling vulnerable, and when that happened, then they get defensive. And when we get defensive, our thinking becomes rigid, our IQ drops about 20 points, and we simply become stupid. And, and not only are we terrible at solving problems, but we tend to invite everybody else in the room to get defensive as well. So we, we have a whole room filled with bad problem solvers at that point.
0: Well, when, when you explain it like that, it makes you wonder uh, what purpose, if any, does it serve and where did, where did it come from? Why did, we get, why did we ever get defensive?
1: Typically, our defensive behaviors were behaviors that we learned much earlier in our life, uh, and they were behaviors that that gave us some shelter or protection from situations that we didn't have much control over. Hey, let me give you an example. If you're a little kid and your parents are fighting all the time, this can be a very scary situation for a little kid. So a really good strategy might be to turn all this anger and all the fighting that's going on um, between the parents into background noise. Right? So it's just gray noise back there. Now that is a really helpful strategy for that little kid. But if that kid takes that same strategy into their adult life, it is a horrible strategy because then what it means is anytime they get into a conflict situation, they become a lousy listener because they've learned that that's something that could help them as a kid, but it undermines them as an adult. So we have all of these behaviors. And the strategy that we try to do is get people to better understand what defensiveness is about recognize when they're getting defensive at an earlier point in the process before it's too late and the damage is done, and then develop an action plan uh, for when they do get defensive.
0: All right, so let's, uh, let's start with that.
1: Yeah. See, most of us think that when we get defensive, uh, we think that we're defending ourselves from other people. Somebody's done something to us, and so we need to protect ourselves from that other person. But that's not really what's going on when we get defensive. We're not defending ourselves from other people. We are defending ourselves from fears inside of us that we don't want to feel. And so we behave in a way that lets us stay unaware of those fears. The three fears that come up all the time are fears about our own significance, our competence, and our likability. If people get fearful about that, they oftentimes will get defensive let me Let me give you an example of, of uh, that say I have some fears about doing this podcast today and say i 'm not prepared i've 've flown in from europe and i'm jet lagged and i 'm tired and i 'm taking things out of order and i 'm not paying attention i'm don 't know what I'm doing now This could cause me a lot of discomfort because I hate feeling incompetent but one way that I could reduce the amount of discomfort that i 'm feeling is I might start blaming you. You know, it's like you're not asking the right questions. You're not giving me enough time to prep. You should have given me the questions ahead of time. You know, I'm making it all your fault. So I don't have to feel my own fear. Uh, So it seems like I'm defending myself against you, but what I'm really doing is I'm behaving in a way that lets me stay unconscious about those fears. If people understand that that's what their defensiveness is about... Uh, what we can do to help them deal with it more effectively is for them to spot what their behaviors are as they're starting to get defensive. Because the fears that we have inside of us are almost all unconscious stuff. So we don't even recognize that we're getting defensive until it's too late and the damage is already done. So we're unaware of these fears because that's the whole point of the defense system. So if we can help people become more aware of what their behaviors are when they're starting to get defensive, that can act as an early warning system for them.
0: And what typically might those things be?
1: Well, for me, for example, uh, I've noticed over the years that when I start getting defensive, I start talking louder, I start breathing a lot faster, I feel very misunderstood. And so if I'm in a room and I'm getting some feedback and I notice that I'm talking louder and breathing faster and feeling kind of misunderstood, the alarm bells can go off, you know, ding, 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 hey, Jim, pay attention. So it's important for people to know what their behaviors are, what these outward signs of defensiveness are, because they're easier to spot. Uh, we've got a list of about 50 of them. You want, you want me to give you some common examples here? Sure. Uh, loss of humor, taking offense. High charge of energy in the body, uh, sudden drop in IQ, wanting the last word, flooding with information to prove a point, withdrawal into deadly silence. That's one of my favorites too. Uh, being very critical or making fun of others or blaming or shaming others. And we've got this long list and we have people take a look at it and uh, pick out their top three. And then they, they need to be on the lookout for those top three. Because those are going to be their personalized early warning system, and if people don't know what their signs are, oftentimes we'll say, "Well, go talk to your family members. <laughs> family members are yeah. quite remil- uh, you know willing to right. help out on this exercise." And...
0: All right. So, but I so I get that because I, I heard myself in many of those things that, that you just listed, so I can recognize it, but I don't know, I, I wouldn't know how to turn it off. That's, I've been doing it forever, so is everybody else, so how do you then do something else when that's your default?
1: Well, that's the key. Once you, once you come up with your early warning system, these top three, once you know what your behaviors are, then you need to be on the lookout for them, and then when you see them, then there's a number of things that you can do. Probably the most important thing is acknowledge to yourself that you're getting defensive. Now, that may not seem like it's a big deal, but it is a huge first step because if you don't notice it and if you don't acknowledge to yourself that you're getting defensive, you won't take any other action. Then once you notice it, then you can try to slow down your physiology uh, and try and re-engage your whole brain. When when we start getting defensive, we tend to get tunnel vision, and a good portion of our brain just shuts down. The prefrontal cortex shuts down, and that's the uh, part of the brain that helps us solve problems. So we don't have access to that. So if you can slow down your physiology and then maybe focus outward in the room, try to look around and see how many different colors you can see, how many different sounds you're hearing. Uh, physical sensations you know notice your feet on the floor your your arm on the on the uh, the armchair uh, your the coat how it rubs up against your sleeve those kinds of things and that can help re-engage some of your brain so that's focusing outward the next thing is to focus inward and try and figure out what the fear is about what the real underlying fear is about whether it's whether you're feeling significant enough or competent enough or likability enough or whatever the underlying fear might be. Then uh, the next step would be to try to create an action plan uh, that's going to moderate the damage of your signs of defensiveness. And so, of course, those are going to be different for everybody. But say your sign is flooding with information to prove a point then maybe your action plan will be simply to be quiet for 15 seconds. Now, that won't help you if your sign is withdrawal into silence. You know, then what you need to do is you need to speak up and ask a question or stay engaged in a conversation somehow. Maybe tell the other party that you're getting defensive. If you have high energy in your body, maybe take a walk or visualize some relaxing place out in the countryside. Or if it's uh, all or nothing thinking. Maybe, you know, you, you only see things in black or white. Anytime you see yourself or feel yourself getting polarized like that, think of a sentence like, look for the gray, to try to remind you that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be black or white. And so it, uh, the, the, the things that you need to pay the most attention to are, first of all, noticing that you're getting defensive. That's your early warning sign. And then practicing your action step this action plan, because you want it to be automatic.
0: We're talking about defensiveness, and we're talking about it with Jim Tam, former administrative law judge and author of the book, Radical Collaboration. Always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or Chardonnay. Or maybe you're more of a whiskey drinker. One of their single-barrel bourbons is sure to please. With a little help from one of their friendly guides, find the perfect bottle that's just right for you. Hosting friends or family and don't have time to shop in-store? No problem. Total Wine & More makes it easy to get everything you need for any occasion with curbside pickup and delivery. But you know what the best thing about shopping at Total Wine & More is? That every bottle comes with the confidence of knowing you just found something amazing. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine and More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B-21. So, Jim, it would seem that if you're being defensive, it's because someone's being offensive. They're attacking. And it seems like it would be hard to keep looking inward and looking for your clues and what you're feeling when people are attacking you.
1: Most of the time, uh, when we're getting defensive, uh, if you can stay non-defensive, it won't necessarily feel like an attack. I mean, they may have disagreements with you. They may, they may argue that you're doing something wrong or everything. But it won't necessarily feel like it's a personal attack out to get you, if you can stay uh, non-defensive, and that's the most important thing that you can do when you're dealing with somebody else who's getting defensive or coming after you. You know, we we've all seen these pictures of the aikido master in the middle of the room who's fighting off the you know 20 warriors at the same time. They can only do that as long as they stay centered. And don't get angry and stay focused on what they're doing. But if they get angry and they become fearful, uh, then they're going to lose it. And that's what happens when you get defensive. So if you can realize the other person is doing this typically because they're fearful about something. I mean, they're getting defensive also or they wouldn't be attacking. They'd be trying to problem solve. Uh, So, you know, if you can keep that in mind and then you can stay non-defensive. Uh, you'll be much more effective.
0: So it, it's, w- w- what's interesting about this is that it seems to me, as I think about situations in my life, that defensive reactions, getting defensive in a conversation with somebody, is a very emotional reaction. And we're talking here in very calm, pleasant tones about how, you know, what you should do when that happens. But people are very emotional, and that's when all this goes out the window.
1: You know, if you can't do it in the moment, what we encourage people to do is to go back as soon as they can after the situation and visualize the situation once again as though they're reliving it and do what we call an after-action review where they see themselves getting defensive, they try to tune in try to understand what the fears are, what the feelings are, and people are, are typically more able to do that later on when they're, when they're looking back on the situation than when they're in the situation. Right? They acknowledge it. They see themselves acknowledging to themselves if they're getting defensive. They try to slow down their physiology. They try to focus on the fear. Then they try to implement this action plan of theirs and they see themselves as they visualize it they see themselves doing that and if you can do that process afterwards yeah it may not help that particular situation but what they're doing is they're creating new neural pathways in their brain which is going to make it easier for them to stay present to not get defensive the next time it comes up and then if they keep practicing, then they'll be able to handle themselves in very difficult situations. So it's, a, you know, taking little baby steps.
0: So let's talk about when roles are reversed here. Not that you're getting defensive, but you're talking to someone and they're getting defensive with you. So how does, how does that conversation go?
1: Sure. Uh, good question. Let me talk about what's the least helpful thing you can do. Okay. (laughs) And that's don't point out to the other party that they're getting defensive. Don't start by doing that. That's what a lot of us want to do. Wow, you're getting defensive here, aren't you? You know, and if you've ever been feeling defensive and someone points that out to you, you know how unhelpful that is. It's like pouring gas on a fire. So first of all, don't do that. Second of all, you stay non-defensive. Try not to get triggered. Try not to take it personally. Right. Then put a lot more energy into listening to what the other party is saying, because oftentimes people will get defensive if they're not feeling heard. If people really feel heard and understand and understood, I mean, even if you disagree with them, oftentimes that will not be as triggering as if you're just ignoring them or or you clearly don't have a clue about what they're talking about. So we encourage people to use all those active listening skills that most of us have been taught and, and most of us ignore most of the time. Uh, you know, summarize what you're hearing from the other person, feed it back, check for understanding, be non-judgmental, ask open questions, all those kinds of listening skills. Put a lot more energy into that. And then once you have a good understanding of what the other person is thinking and feeling, then in order to resolve the differences that you may have with this other person. Use this interest-based approach. Talk more about what the interests of both parties are. Look for the overlap there. Look for the, the area where there might be some meetings of the mind in there. And just paying attention to those few things uh, can make a big difference in solving problems.
0: You used the phrase a moment ago. Don't take it personally. Is, is that feeling of taking it personally the same thing as defensiveness, or is that a symptom of, if not? Yeah, that's
1: kind? yeah, that's a that's a big part of it, uh, because oftentimes, if I'm talking to somebody and they're getting angry or they're uh, attacking me or something, it's because they're fearful about something too, you know? So if I can sit back in my own mind, I mean, I don't have to say anything about this, but if I can sit back and say, all right, well, there's, they're feeling emotional about something, right? So what's going on there? What am I saying or doing that might be triggering them? How am I contributing to their attitude right at the moment? you know? So maybe if I stay calm, if I can be asking more questions, if I can be trying to learn more about what's going on inside of them, that's a good way to to help diffuse the situation.
0: If you can do it. If somebody's screaming and yelling at you, it it seems so hard to sit there and go, well, they're being defensive. Let me just think about this. And they're screaming, uh, you know. uh,
1: Well, and I think it's, uh, it's entirely legitimate to say, look, I'm not going to sit here and be abused. Uh, but if someone is just emotional, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're being abusive. It may feel like we're being abused if we start getting defensive, too. But I think it's perfectly legitimate to set some clear boundaries. In fact, when, when we're teaching collaboration skills, one of the things we say is if you're going to be good at collaboration, you also need to be good at setting clear boundaries. You have to be able to say no if your yes is going to mean anything, you know. So it's, it's very legitimate to say, listen, I, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to understand your position. But I'm not going to allow you to be screaming at me. That is not acceptable behavior. So let's reschedule this meeting for a time when you can, you know, be a little calmer. Unless you want to tone down right now.
0: It does seem that, well, that this sounds hard. That if you've been the kind of person who gets defensive, or if you're dealing with someone who's being defensive, it's, it's hard to act and react the way you're, you're talking about.
1: Well, one thing that helps, too, is if you have a compassionate attitude towards yourself, uh, if you are trying to change your behavior and become less defensive, but you beat yourself up every time you get defensive, that's not going to help. That's like trying to get a turtle to stick its neck out by pounding on the shell. You know, you need to to let yourself feel safe. Cut yourself a little slack. Be compassionate. Be charitable with yourself. Recognize that this is a human condition. It's going to happen. So if you get defensive, you notice it, you acknowledge it to yourself, you take some action, you try to correct the situation you're in, and then afterwards, you know, you do your little after-action review if you can, then let it go. And move on, and don't keep beating yourself up, because it, it's never in your best interest to keep punishing yourself for something like this. Otherwise, it's just going to make it worse.
0: And so tell me that with with all that you know and all your experience as a judge, you still lose it. Come on, you, you there, there have to be...
1: <laughs> yes, Yes, I do.
0: <laughs> Thank God.
1: But not nearly as often or as badly as I did 40 years ago. <laughs>
0: Well, it's a subject that we can all relate to because we all have to deal with our own defensiveness as well as the defensiveness coming from other people. So it's really good to get some insight and some advice on how best to deal with it. Jim Tam has been my guest for 20 years. Jim was an administrative law judge. He now has a business called Radical Collaboration, where he helps people get beyond defensiveness and helps them to collaborate. And he's author of the book, Radical Collaboration. There's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Jim.
1: Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure to be here. I love talking about this subject, so I appreciate the opportunity.
4: What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit justcapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business.
3: Furnished by Just Capital.
4: Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal, Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business.
3: Furnished by Just Capital.
0: You know, there are plenty of books and conversations about mother-daughter relationships and about father-son relationships, but you don't hear as much about the mother-son relationship. Yet, in some households, a mother is a son's only parent, and in almost every case, the mother-son relationship is special, unique, and extremely important. Meg Meeker is a medical doctor, and she's really studied the relationship between opposite-gender parents and children. She's author of a book called Strong Mothers, Strong Sons. Uh, So welcome, Dr. Meeker, and explain what it is you see that is so important about the mother-son relationship.
2: Well, I think it's very important today because it's difficult for the parent who is trying to parent the opposite-sex child to understand what the needs of the child are and to understand um, you know, particularly with mothers and sons, when you need to move into their lives and when you need to gently pull back. And it's very important because boys need their mothers to do that. There are a lot of mothers who don't understand what their boys need. And particularly because we're, we're living in a time where many of the, the boy experts, if you will, you know, Dr. William Pollack and um, Leonard Sachs, talk about the boy crisis. Uh, where boys are falling behind in school. Boys are much more likely to be diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity and different learning disorders as well. There's a whole lot mothers can do, so I really wrote the book to open mother's eyes to what their boys need and what they don't need and how mothers can enjoy a richer, deeper, um, really more fun relationship with their boys.
0: So in a broad sense, what do boys need and what do boys not need from their mother?
2: During the first 10 years, boys need a lot of security to come from their mothers. They need a lot of time. They need affection. Um, They need a bonding. For instance, mothers uh, bond with their their children, particularly their daughters, by talking to them. Boys, however, bond with parents and other people more by doing activities together. So there's one instance where I say, moms, you know, you may want to bond with your son during his second, third, fourth grade years by talking a lot. But he really just wants to go bike riding with you, and he wants to spend more time with you. So it's really important for mothers in those first 10 years of life to give boys a strong sense of security, um, a comfort with themselves. Mothers need to help boys sort of identify their feelings and then learn what to do with those feelings in a healthy way, you know, anger and sadness. But then during those pre-adolescent years, Boys pull away from their mothers. Daughters don't, but boys do because developmentally they need to do that to develop um, uh, emotionally into an emotionally and psychologically healthy young man. Very painful time for moms. Mom needs to understand what's going on. So... You know, And then a little bit later on in a boy's life, after high school, he again pulls away, and then he pulls away again when he goes to get married. Again, these are things that mothers don't experience with daughters. They do experience with them with sons. So I found educating mothers and, and helping them through these different phases will help them ultimately have a better adult relationship with their sons.
0: This pulling away, um, the way you describe it, is, is just a, is a natural part of growing up, right?
2: Absolutely. Bruno Bettelheim used to say that during the early adolescent years, boys quote kill off their mother. It's kind of a, you know, a, a violent uh, wording, but really what he means is that boys need to emotionally detach a little bit because with the puberty coming on and they're sensing their maleness coming out in a much stronger way and this they feel very close to their mothers. Hopefully, but they don't know it, it just feels a little bit creepy if you will. they're close to this woman, they love this woman, but now they're a different person, and they're male, and they they need to figure all that out. So in order to do that, they need to emotionally distance themselves, not completely it's not a it's not a complete tearing away. But it's very painful for mothers because mothers begin to feel that their sons don't like them anymore. Boys get a little snarly. They get snappy. They, they they look at their mothers like, I don't need you. Everything in their body language is, I don't need you. Of course, down deep, they do need their mother and they're conflicted about that, but they don't want to. So if, when mothers understand this is a normal, healthy process that my son needs to go to, we don't chase after them and say, what's wrong, what's wrong? We don't take it personally. We learn to ride with it and, and to sort of let them pull away but be ready when they want to come back and, and be closer to us, which they do. A healthy, in a healthy relationship, they will. And that's one of the things I tell mothers, but boys won't come back and be close to you again if you don't let them move away.
0: When will they be back?
2: <laughs> that's the multi- million-dollar question. I always tell mothers, your job is to raise a healthy 25-year-old son or daughter. And the reason I say 25 is because that's when they have full cognitive maturity, full uh, intellectual maturity, and psychologically they're on much firmer ground. Usually mothers don't have to wait until their sons are 25 to have a healthy, strong, good relationship. Boys come back, if you will, during the teen years, whenever a boy begins to feel more comfortable with his masculine identity and more comfortable with who he is separate from his mother as an individual, a lot of boys feel that at 15, 16, 17. Some boys don't, and it doesn't come till they're 20. Um, but at least the snarliness that mom gets at 13 or 14 usually goes away when a boy is 15 or 16. It can come up again when he leaves home and he's living off on his own or he's going off to college. And then it comes back again. And then again, that final separation when he goes to get married, mom needs to realize I can no longer, I cannot be between him and his wife if they're to have a healthy relationship. Um, I need to sort of stay on the periphery. But once they get a solid marriage and they're on solid ground, there's a real strong place for me, me to be present in my son's life with really firm boundaries.
0: And while this is happening, um, when boys pull away and get snarly, are they not also doing it to their fathers?
2: Not as much. You know, it's interesting. They, they tend to pull away more from their mothers for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're female. And I really believe that the development of the masculine sexuality is is contingent on the healthy feminine sexuality, if you will, sort of the opposite sharpens the opposite. So there's more thorniness there. There's more sort of figuring out who I am as a male um, and you're female. The teen years for boys are really about looking towards dad as the male role model, the male identity. And as he as a boy separates from mom, he sort of visually goes towards dad and said, That's who I wanna be and they pick out pieces of their dad and and and, and they want to figure out what do I want to emulate and what do I not want to emulate. So in a way they want to draw closer to their dad during their teen years in an ideal world and separate more from mom during their teen years um, because she's female. The second reason that they tend to pull away from mom more than dad is that usually boys feel a little more emotionally connected to their mothers. Again, because we're the ones who spend more time with our sons. We're the ones who pick them up when they cry. We don't say, you know, hey, when, when somebody hurts your feelings in second grade, don't cry, you need to just man up. That's the way it is. Moms don't do that. Moms go, oh, come to me. It's okay. You know, so, so they tend to be a, feel a little bit closer to mom, feel a little more secure in their relationship with mom. That's why they pull away more as they, as they go to be more independent in the early teen years.
0: Do you know, is it the case that uh, when boys pull away from their mothers as they start to mature, is this true across cultures and across time? Is this a fairly universal thing?
2: You know, it really is. And interestingly enough, it's a great question because there are things that we do in the American culture that are very, um, um, you know, they seem to be... um Peculiar just to the American culture. For instance, the the, the whole way, you know, our teenagers, we approach our teenagers like they they turn into monsters from 13 to 18 and they kind of go wild and do this Um, all-piercing. That's really not normal. A lot of kids want to stay much more connected to their parents during their teen years. However, the pulling away and the separation of a boy from his mother crosses all cultures and it crosses all Socioeconomic divides, and it crosses, um, <clears throat> you know, in in different countries as well, because it's the normal growing up of the male, um, the male identity through the different stages in his life, and since all males have a mother, um, then they all need to go through that shifting of their relationship in with their mother whether they have a good relationship with mom or whether they don't. Um, this is something that all boys have to go, a process all boys have to go through to, to, be, a strong, um, to be a strong man.
0: And what is your uh, experience as to do women, do moms get it, or do, are moms surprised when this happens and hurt, and, and, uh, or do they sort of intuitively understand what's going on?
2: You know, I don't think we intuitively understand. And I, and I, you know, I write books really not so much for other people but myself because we need to figure. Authors need to figure stuff out, so we write books so that we learn things. And after raising a son and three daughters, my husband and I, when it came to my son, I just was always scratching my head, and I, and I just couldn't get what was going on. And um, and my husband would often say, "Give him." You don't need to understand now. You don't need to understand. And I think that we mothers who really want to parent our sons well and and all of our kids, we really want to understand there's some things we just can't understand until somebody comes along and says, here's how your son sees you. So we put on the glasses that allow us to sit behind our son's eyes and go, aha, now I get what he wants and how he sees the world and how he sees me. And, it's, and, it, and I think that that doesn't always come through intuition. It comes through, um, you know, understanding and teaching. And because boys think very differently, they bond very differently, they communicate very differently. Um, yes, they feel similarly and they feel, you know, hurt is hurt and pain and sorrow and anger are all the same. But what gets us to those places are very different. So I think that it's important for mothers to understand because, when we experience pushback from our sons, we always assume it's our fault. No matter what, good mothers, when they see things going wrong in their kids' lives or they see their kids unhappy or they see their kids going through something, no matter what the cause, we always assume, A, we caused it somehow, and B, there's something we can do about it because we're a mom. And I think that when we understand, no, we didn't cause it, And no, there's not always something we need to do about it. We don't always need to correct. We need to just stick with our sons as they go through these phases. Boy, that releases, that frees us up so much, and we can really enjoy being moms. But if we're all bound up in feeling guilty and feeling like we need to change something, it ties us in knots and makes our roles as moms really pretty tough.
0: You know, it's, I've never heard this discussed before, and yet um, it seems that it, it, it affects so many people, but I've never heard anybody actually come out and say, this always or is likely to happen with you and your son, so be prepared.
2: It's interesting that you say that, because I agree. Interestingly enough, a lot of the research and the study going on in boys is done by men. And I think that's logical because men understand boys. And to you listening to what I'm saying, you go, well, sure, well, sure, well, sure. Well, see, we women don't know this. And I was so taken aback when I had letters from men after I wrote Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, who said, thank you for showing us how girls see us because we never got this. When you're trying to parent the opposite sex, there's so much that you just don't understand. So I think it's the fact that as a woman and as a mom – I came at this from a very different perspective than maybe some of the other, you know, boy gurus out there who are men because they wrote with a different sensibility and understanding that I as a mom and, and a woman and a pediatrician would. So you're right. That's been my experience as I've been talking about the book is people are like, well, why hasn't anybody broached this before? But I think it's because, you know, the, the opposite sex um, involvement here.
0: But you're, but you're really talking about, well, at least in this interview, uh, helping moms understand it, whereas m- many of the male boy gurus are talking about helping the boys do what boys do. You're talking about moms doing what they do with their boys.
2: Exactly. But, but here's where, where we stumble, where we mothers stumble. In our earnestness to parent our sons really well, we parent them very much like we parent our daughters. We pour it on. We go after them. We talk to them. We coddle them. We do everything for them. We don't want them to fail. We don't want them to hurt. We don't want them to fall down. We want to make their life as easy as possible. But you know you cannot grow up to be a strong man if you have a mom who's always doing that for you. Interestingly enough, mothers, I have found, in general, are harder on their daughters than they are their sons because we see our daughters as little mini-us. You know, we know what they can take, we know what they can do, and we're going to drive them. But for our sons, we're not quite sure. So we tend to to be a little overbearing, and we tend to not let them go, and we tend to parent them far too long. We don't want to let our boys go. But if we want men... If we want to help raise men, we have to pull back. We have to let go. We've got to confront that. And that's very hard for eager, earnest moms who adore their sons. We don't want to let them hurt and fall and figure out life because that's what we're supposed to do for them. So this is why the book is so important, is to, is to help moms understand a, you're making your life way too hard and B, you need to back off because honestly, Mike, I know women out there with 25, 6, 7-year-old men sons who are really hard uh, for their their daughter-in-laws to live with because these moms won't let go because we believe as good moms, our job if we're really good moms is to quote unquote stay close to our boys forever and but we don't know what that really means and we cross boundaries all the time
0: is there any reason to believe or, or is there any evidence that you know, if moms didn't do what you're talking about if they didn't try to hold on so much that sons wouldn't pull away so much
2: you know I think I think you're right I, I do I absolutely do because and this pulling away is very very tricky you know, I tell every mother, when when every mother looks at her newborn baby boy, there's this horrible sense you have that one day he's going to leave you. You don't have that with a daughter, because daughters don't have to leave their mom or their dad. But when you have a son and you're a mother and you adore this little boy and you know that one day he'll leave and get married, this sort of grieving process starts. And what what we need to understand is, if we get what's going on and we understand that, our goal is to have a really great relationship with our adult sons. We relax more. We don't cling to them. We don't claw after them. Um, that's That's a very harsh thing to say, but I say that as a mother who's wanted to do that with my own son is to hang on, you know, not let go. If we relax and let go, they are much less likely to pull away as hard and as long because the more we ha- want to hang on to our sons, and again, this comes, <clears throat> this doesn't come overtly. It's sort of this this subtle language that, that mothers have with their sons. Boys know it and we know it, but when we communicate somehow to our sons that we can't let go, that drives the boys far away, and they don't want to come back because they know it's not healthy. So if we learn to roll with it and to stand back and to let them go, they're, when they pull away, it won't be as fierce and it won't last as long. You're
0: absolutely right. Well, this is not only interesting, but I suspect it comes as a relief to a lot of mothers who probably feel like, you know, why is it just me and my son that are having this issue? Or why do I feel this way? That It's pretty much inherent in the relationship between mothers and sons as, as they go through these times in life pediatrician Dr. Meg Meeker has been my guest. She is author of the book Strong Mothers, Strong Sons, and you will find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Have you ever suffered from ring Almost everyone has. It's that experience of the phantom ring on your cell phone. You think it's ringing or vibrating, but when you check it, it was nothing. It was just your imagination, But interestingly, it happens to some people more than others. Some scientists looked into it and found that people who were more insecure or anxious about their love relationships experienced phantom ringing more than other people, particularly if they were expecting a call. The need for reassurance from a partner caused people to hear their phone ringing even when it wasn't. And while this may be an occasional annoyance, there's growing awareness that ringxiety may result in both immediate and longer negative health effects, including headache, stress, and sleep disturbances. And that is something you should know. If you are a subscriber to this podcast, many thanks for doing that. And if you're not a subscriber, it's easy to do, it's completely free, and then the episodes are sent to you and you don't have to remember to come get them. Just subscribe on Apple Podcasts or or whatever platform you're listening on. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That, too, is a move. A smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a house boat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023. Turbo tax experts make all your moves count, getting you every credit and deduction you deserve, filing with 100% accuracy, and getting your max refund guaranteed. Switch to TurboTax, make your moves, and they will make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com slash guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live